All right, good morning. Welcome to the men's Bible study on this Tuesday morning. Glad that y'all are here. Um, I think most of you probably got a handout on your way in. If you didn't grab one, um, feel free to, to get one just outside the doors here. Uh, it's got the passage for today, as well as some discussion questions for you guys to use in your groups afterwards. Um, it's a privilege to be here this morning. My name is Matt Frey, one of the pastors here at PCPC. Uh, this morning we are continuing our series on prayers of the Bible and looking this morning at Psalm 51, a prayer that's probably uh, maybe more familiar than some that you've looked at so far um, at the last two weeks, um, one that's utilized regularly in worship services, um, but this morning we're going to look at this psalm and see how it guides us and provides a model for us of, of confession, of, of what confession means and how we as believers uh, need to make a habit, a practice, a discipline of continual confession and repentance in our lives as Christians. So before we read it, let me pray and ask God to set apart this time and to minister to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for waking us with, uh, with energy. Um, and where we're lacking, we thank you for sustaining us. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new each morning, uh, that we can wake assured that you are merciful and gracious, and that you will provide everything that we need in this day for life, and for godliness. Where we feel insufficient, Father, we pray that we would also feel your sufficiency, your power, your love, your wisdom. Father, this morning as we turn to your word, we pray that you would illumine it, that you would shine forth your truth through it, that your Holy Spirit would be at work um, calling things to mind in our own lives that intersect with this passage. Um, teaching us more and more to, to be men of prayer and men of humble, genuine, consistent confession uh, and repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So let me read for us Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. And I'm going to begin reading... Um, I forgot to include it here on the handout, but I'm going to read the, what's called the ascription for this psalm. Uh, the ascription is at the header of some of the psalms. You see some, some words in italics or words that are um, in, in my copy here. They're, they're all in capital letters, kind of in bold face. And the ascription is, is actually part of the author's text. Uh, the editors don't put a verse number by it because um, it's set apart from the actual poem or song or prayer, but it's inspired. This is not from the editor of the ESV. This is from David. And so the ascription is important for this psalm because this psalm comes on a particular occasion. It comes on a particular occasion authored by David following his confrontation with Nathan the prophet after sinning 
with Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab and more and more and more. So for some of you, you may be familiar with the story of David's life. Um, We won't take time this morning to read the whole thing, but in David's life, this king over Israel, the second king of Israel, um, he commits adultery. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and chapter 14. And the story there is of a man, of a king, seeing a beautiful woman, giving in to his lust for her by committing adultery with her, and then seeking to cover that adultery up um, in various ways, including the murder of her husband. Um, It's an incredibly violent, evil, um, wicked section of God's Word where David, a man of God, a man who is one that has been called a man after his own heart, departs from walking faithfully um, for a sustained season and brings upon himself and those around him real suffering and destruction. And this is David's prayer following that. And I'll say this, David's prayer is a good model for us. One thing that's not a good model is found in this ascription. The one way this prayer is not a good model is found in the ascription. David only prayed this after a prophet came and confronted him. David's heart was hard. He was burying and covering and denying the reality of sin. And it was only after the man of God, Nathan, this prophet, came to David and confronted him and exposed his sin that David prayed this prayer of confession. So we should pray like David. We'll we'll talk about that. But we should pray before David prayed, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us for our sins. All that to say, here's the ascription and Psalm 51. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this fall we are looking at various prayers of the Bible. This prayer comes in, uh, in the middle of the book of the Bible that is filled with prayers, the book of Psalms. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with the book of Psalms and have, have read some of it or all of it before. The book of Psalms is, is a book of prayers or poems or songs. There are all three of those things, prayers, poems, songs. This Psalm, Psalm 51, is something to be prayed, it's something to be sung, um, and it's certainly laid out poetically. Uh, And so we've gone to lots of different places of the Bible, and throughout this fall, as we look at different prayers of the Bible, this is actually the only week we'll be in the book of Psalms. And so just a brief encouragement that if you have found your prayer life stagnant, and I use the word if kind of uh, sarcastically, we all find our prayer life stagnant many times in many ways. Um, That is ordinary. We shouldn't uh, feel guilty by it as if we are somehow bad Christians, but we should respond to that. And one of the great ways to to break up the hard soil or the the, uh, over-repetition of certain ways of praying, one of the great ways of addressing that is opening the book of Psalms and seeing how men like David and Asaph and Solomon and others prayed. This has been the prayer book or the hymn book for God's people for thousands of years. And there is no circumstance, there is no circumstance that is totally unmentioned by the book of Psalms. There's no emotion that you can face in your life that the book of Psalms does not address. Um, And so I'd encourage you um, to regularly be reading and praying through the Psalms, um, just as a ordinary discipline of the Christian life and something that's been tried and true and a blessing to God's people for thousands of years. This particular psalm is one of seven uh, penitential psalms, uh, psalms that are used to confess sin, to express penitence, to express contrition, to seek God's forgiveness. And so this is not the only psalm that talks about confession. There are other great psalms Um, these other penitential psalms like Psalm 6 and 32 and 38 and 102 and 130 um, and 143. Those are uh, wonderful penitential psalms. This particular one is arguably the most famous of the penitential psalms, and it's one of the most famous in the whole book of Psalms, probably top five. You've got Psalm 23, um, you've got Psalm 51, um, you've got Psalm 100, uh, and a few others. But this is uh, a a classic, um, perhaps the template 
for how we ought to be confessing sin. Uh, Again, David should have been praying these things before having to be found out by Nathan, but as he prays, he gives us an incredible model for our prayer, our prayers of confession. Um, Prayer is to be a regular part of the Christian life, and because sin is a regular part of the Christian life, prayers of confession should be a regular part of the Christian life, regular as in daily, because we sin daily. So we should be cultivating these kinds of prayers in our hearts, in our lips, maybe not 19 verses worth every hour, but we should be cultivating some version of prayers like this on our lips every day. Because the story of our lives as Christians is a story where, yes, we have been freed from the penalty of sin, and someday we will be freed from the presence of sin, but right now we we are waging war against it. We are seeking to be sanctified and every day doing battle against sin, and so this prayer can be a model for us. And it's a model uh, in in four ways. We're going to just truck right through all 19 verses, uh, kind of following this basic structure. There's a foundation for David's prayer in verses 1 and 2, so David's foundation. His confession, so his actual confession of his sin, of his evil, of his wrongdoing, of the guilt within, his confession is verses 3 through 6. His restoration is described and prayed for in verses 7 through 12, and then his transformation as in his new obedience, the, the, the new way of life that he is seeking to strive after in verses 13 through 19. So foundation, verses 1 and 2, confession, the actual confession, verses 3 through 6, restoration, verses 7 through 12, and transformation, verses 13 through 19. That will kind of be our, our template for this morning. The foundation of David's prayer is important if you think about what David has done, giving into lust by committing adultery, seeking to cover up that adultery by sending Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, out to battle to be killed, making his own soldiers complicit in uh, Uriah's attempted murder by telling them to put Uriah on the front lines. It's a fascinating story. You can read the whole thing in 1 Samuel 12. Um, But David has committed some very serious sins. Now, all sin is serious. All sin is condemnable by God. But there are certain sins that produce more severe damage in our world to us, to other people. And the sins that David is committing are severe in their ramifications for Bathsheba, for Uriah, for all these people surrounding him, for David's wife, Michael. David's sin is severe. And The temptation is, when sin is severe, the temptation for all of us, whether it's a simple sin or a severe sin, the temptation is is what? Cover it up. Shift the blame. Do something 
to avoid the repercussions and the responsibility of owning the consequences for that sin. For all of us, that is probably uh, at some level still instinctual in our hearts. Even if you've been a follower of Jesus and renewed by the Holy Spirit um, and have experienced uh, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and, and, and you love the Lord, there's still something instinctual in us that wants to run and hide and, and justify ourselves and shift the blame and shift the gaze of God away from us towards someone or something else. And so it's important to even recognize David is expressing great courage and great boldness by even opening his lips to pray to God. He is about to acknowledge what he has done and acknowledge its severity and open himself up to the, to the wrath and judgment of God and say, do with me what you will because of what I've done. That takes courage. That is not a light thing. But David's able to do that because, not because of how well he's going to pray, and he thinks, oh, if I really nail this one, God is gonna, God's not going to reject me, and he's not going to turn me away. I'm going to give the good 19-verse prayer of confession. That's not David's source of courage and confidence. That's not his foundation. The foundation of why David can even pause and pray and open his lips and open his heart to a holy God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. The only way David can do that is he knows God's character is gracious. He knows God's character is gracious. And so even in just in verse 1, verse 1, if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember verse 1. <laughs> David appeals for mercy according to what? He uses that phrase twice. According to, in the second line of verse 1, and again in the third line of verse 1, according to your steadfast love. He doesn't say according to my position as king, have mercy on me. You know, defend the integrity of your kingdom by showing me mercy and allowing the status quo to continue. He doesn't say, have mercy on me because I'm never going to do it again. Hopefully he's not. <laughs> but that's not the source of his plea for mercy. That's not the, the ground or the foundation of his confession. It says, according to your steadfast love. And then the third line, according to your abundant mercy. It is only because David knows that God has steadfast love. It's only because David knows God is characterized by abundant mercy that God's first move towards his people is mercy in the face of sin. That is why David can pray this way. And we know that's true of God's character. Yes, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Yes, there will come judgment for all of his enemies who harden their hearts and rebel against him. But God's first move towards the sinner is always a move of mercy. We see that with Adam and Eve. He told Adam and Eve that on the day that they eat of the fruit of the tree that they would surely die, and they didn't. He extended mercy. He was long-suffering. The Hebrew idiom for this uh, 
in, in describing this is that, that God is long of nose. He is long of nose, meaning you think of someone's face glowing red when they are angry, and maybe their, their nose glows red when they're steaming with anger. And the idiom in the Hebrew is that, that God, though he doesn't have a nose, is long of nose. It takes a long time for him to, to become wrathful and angry. His character towards his people is first a character and a response of mercy. And so that's why David can f- confess. That's why any of us can confess, is that he knows that he will find in God mercy. Now, just a quick aside for us, for those of you who are a friend or a husband or a father, I'd ask you this, are you a safe place for people to go to and confess sin? In your friendships, in in your relationship with your wife, in your relationship to your children, are they afraid to come to you and tell you that they've done something wrong? Or do they know that if they come to you, that, that you won't sweep their sin under the rug and just ignore it and pat them on the head and say, it's all, it's all fine, I'll take care of it, it's all good. But that when, you come, when they come to you, that you will respond first with mercy and compassion. For us, being able to say, I've been there too. I've... I, I've thought the same thoughts. I've done something similar. I've I've seen the same kinds of things and experienced the same kinds of temptations and that we would sympathize with their weaknesses and express mercy and give them the gospel of Jesus, pointing them to the character of a merciful God. And yes, there may be ways, particularly uh, as as a father, where you, you may need to exercise some discipline and some consequences, but does your character reflect God's character? in being one who, who your friends and spouse and children know they can come to and receive something like the character of God in the face of their sin. So David has this foundation for his prayer in verses 1 and 2. Then the actual substance of his confession is in verses 3 through 6. Verses 1 and 2 are kind of a header, an introduction, and verses 3 through 6 really get at the the meat of his confession. And David employs strong language for how he has sinned against God. He says, my sin is ever before me, verse 3. It's this, this way of expressing that he is fully and constantly aware of his sin, that his heart is deeply genuinely convicted by the reality of what he's done. In verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That word evil is not one that we use too regularly in our culture today. David uses it of himself, that I have done what is evil. I've done something evil. It's important for us to acknowledge there is evil in the world. It's important for us to acknowledge there remains evil within us, even as believers. Yes, justified, saved by God, never more to lose our salvation, but still waging war against that old, deeply ingrained sinful nature 
that wages war against us. And so David confesses that evil. Now, David doesn't go into great detail about his sin. He mentions the occasion at the beginning that this is related to his sin with Bathsheba and all that follows. He doesn't go into great detail saying, this is exactly what was in my heart when I saw her and, and why I did this and, and what it was like. He doesn't go into the, any kind of uh, list of specific sins. He could probably list a few dozen that, of ways that he sinned in those days. Knowing that it was a prolonged period of time, maybe he could list a few hundred ways that he sinned in those days. But David doesn't go into that detail here, but he is clearly owning the reality of his sin. Now, David does also say, he says in verse uh, 4, against you and you only have I sinned. David is not saying that there are no, that he has not sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or Michael or Joab or others. He's not saying that he's not sinned against those people. He is placing the primacy of his sin as an offense before God. Yes, there would be relational, horizontal sins that he needs to go and seek forgiveness for and make amends for. There would be consequences for his sin relationally that he would never fully outrun. His family was going to be a mess in all kinds of ways. There was a real consequence for his sin in that this child that was conceived with Bathsheba died as a result in discipline for his sin. But David is emphasizing that it is that our sins, his sin and all of our sin, is primarily an offense before God. And I don't know if it's true for you, but it's sometimes true for me. If I've done something wrong, if I've sinned against someone, I'm far quicker to, to go and try to make things right with that person than I am to pause and recognize how I've offended God by sinning against that person. Because that person has that, that most tangible, most immediate influence on me. I, I want things to be right there so that I feel better. And to, to uh, go through that right process of forgiveness and reconciliation. But we never need to forget, we must never forget, our sins are always sins against God. And, and so going to God in prayer should be a quick response, an, an increasingly instinctual response to our sins, that we would go to God, confess our sins as David did. David places his sin um, in his actions that he has done things that are evil. David also rehearses the fact that he has been evil from conception, that he has a sinful nature. He's confessing his sinful nature. He's confessing his sinful actions. He's confessing that God delights in truth. God delights in purity in the inward person and that he has fallen short. And so David confesses in that way. Now David then also prays for restoration. So there's not just me merely the telling to God of what he had done. That's important. But there's also the next step, and this is where we shift kind of from confession to repentance. Confession is, is telling God what you've done, getting it out, 
verbalizing, acknowledging. Repentance is a turn, is a change, is a moving in a new direction, a striving after new obedience. And so the beginning of that happens here in verses 7 through 12, where David prays for restoration. And verse 7 is important. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That's the continual metaphor in, in this chapter for sin is David feels unclean. He feels defiled. He feels dirty. You hear it in verse 1 and 2, wash me, cleanse me. You hear it here again in verse 7, uh, purge me, wash me, make me white, whiter than snow. Um, but David prays for God to take action. He knows that he himself cannot purge his heart for his sins. He knows that he cannot, uh, you know, by outward washing or by his own efforts of inward washing, make himself clean. If he could, he would never have prayed. He prays because he knows only God can make him clean. And the instrument by which God will make him clean, he mentions, it's the, the fourth word of verse 7, hyssop. It says, purge me with hyssop. Now, what's hyssop? It's not some, like, really strong, abrasive soap. Um, hyssop is actually a plant. It's a plant that's common in the ancient Near East. It kind of looks like a lavender plant, uh, kind of tall and uh, thin stalks with purple flowers on it. And hyssop was used by priests in the Old Testament uh, in ceremonial sacrificial worship. The hyssop plant was a few branches were, were gathered and bundled together, and the end of the hyssop plant would be dipped in a basin of blood from the sacrifice that had been offered. Leviticus chapter 5 reminds us of of how in the Old Testament, blood was required for the offering of sin, for the atonement of sin. Leviticus 5, verse 4, uh, Moses writes, he said, As if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or do good or any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and when he realizes his guilt in any of these things, when he realizes his guilt in any of these things and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as a compensation for the sin he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. It's describing there that whenever you sin, you're to make atonement for that sin by going to the priest and, and bringing an animal with blood to be sacrificed. Um, this is actually Leviticus 5, the first time in the Bible the word confess is used. Confession always goes together with an offering of blood. And so the hyssop branch was used then as the blood was poured out from that animal and, and collected in a basin. The hyssop branch was used and, and dipped in that basin and then sprinkled within the holy place of the tabernacle and then temple sprinkled on the altar and on the, the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And even at times, that blood was sprinkled on the people. You see that tradition sometimes in 
Orthodox worship, where water is sprinkled on people as this outward expression of cleansing. Well, in the Old Testament, blood was sprinkled on people. That is not OSHA safe. (laughs) Um, But blood was sprinkled in those gatherings for worship as a symbol that God had accepted the sacrifice for sin and then applied the forgiveness of that sacrifice for sin to the people that had offered it. David prays that 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 hyssop ritual, that that blood of sacrifice would be applied to him, that his sins would be purged because of the blood of a sacrifice. And of course, all those sacrifices, all those bloody ritualistic sacrifices of the Old Testament ultimately point us to Jesus. They were all foreshadowings and pointers to the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of a lamb without blemish or splot, the the precious blood as 1 Peter 1 describes it, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, we won't take time to read it all right now, but Hebrews chapter 9 rehearses how it was in the Old Testament that those offerings for sin were made and, and blood was offered as a part of that sacrifice and the people were sprinkled clean. And But Hebrews reminds us, it says in chapter 9, verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And a few verses later, he says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. And he says later on, It is the blood of Jesus Christ, ultimately, that justifies us, that saves us. We are not saved. We're not able to come and confess our sins to God, pointing to anything in us. Our confession is oriented around the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If we are to be forgiven, it is only because Jesus' blood was shed, not because we have somehow attempted to clean ourselves up or paid a certain amount of penance or promised new obedience but it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ completely. We're getting ready at the end of this month to celebrate a holiday. Some call it Halloween, others call it Reformation Day. October 31st was the day in uh, years, years ago, over 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And one of the great emphases of the Reformation and of the Protestant story in our world is that there has been clarity that our justification, our salvation, our actually being reconciled with God is not contingent on anything in us, but only on the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And regularly, the Roman Catholic Church then and now confuses that and says, well, make confession, 
And when you make confession, we'll also tell you what to do to really make it right. Make confession and then also do these things. And it's this indirect, vague, um, confusing way of blending justification with sanctification. We are justified fully, completely, period, by Christ. That leads us to obedience. And so David is clear on that. His purging, his washing is by the blood of Jesus. That is what restores him to the joy of his salvation. That is what upholds him with a willing spirit. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. Lastly, real quick, and then we'll close. David's transformation. This is just the last few verses. And I'm just going to jump real quick to verse 17. David here is describing ways in which he is seeking after new obedience, that his life Um, He is not promising perfection in his life. He can't do that. None of us can do that. We shouldn't promise that because we can't keep it. He's not promising perfection, but he is promising a zeal and expressing a zeal and a commitment for new obedience. He's going to tell people how he's been restored by God through Jesus Christ. He's going to sing about it. And, verse 17, he's going to make a habit of confession. He's going to make a habit of being a man who is not oriented around his own pleasure as he was when he sinned with Bathsheba. That the center of his life, the characteristic quality of his life is not going to be this lust and pursuit of pleasure, but it's going to be walking humbly before God, always aware of his his capacity and maybe his propensity to do things like commit adultery with Bathsheba. That he's going to keep the reality of his brokenness before his heart and before his mind and before his lips all his days. And that's the posture of our life as Christians. This humility, this brokenheartedness, this broken and contrite heart, that is what we want to cultivate as a consistent virtue throughout our lives as God's people. And so Psalm 51 teaches us that a godly prayer of confession will always aim at obedience and make a continual rhythm of confession. As you leave this morning, um, we're going to pause in just a moment. I'll pray and we'll break into our groups. As you leave this morning, whether your group is meeting in here or you're going outside the doors, there's there's a a handout I wanted you to take as you leave, that just has a prayer on it. This is a prayer from a prayer book called Every Moment Holy. And it's a prayer that is a liturgy for one battling a destructive desire. Now, I've already said we should be praying God's Word. (laughs) Absolutely, to be sure. There's also ways in which we can be encouraged and edified by seeing how other people are praying. And this prayer is one that's really helpful to me as we think about our continual temptations that are ever before us as men, as God's people. This is a a, a beautiful prayer that I'd encourage you to to read, to learn from, and to pray based on, um, to pray the words of that prayer. Ultimately, this is not merely David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. It's to be ours. Some version of it we should be praying every day 
probably multiple times a day. And so let's pray for the Holy Spirit to do his work in showing us how we need it for this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would take some line, some phrase, some principle, some truth from this passage and help it connect with whatever it is that we are struggling with this day. Whether we are tempted towards a sin this morning, whether we are experiencing the guilt and the conviction of sin in a deeper way this morning. Father, whether we, we are wandering and have not been convicted, that our feet have wandered and our minds have wandered and our hearts have wandered and we've made a habit of sin, we pray that your Holy Spirit would intercede. And just like Nathan the prophet did, we pray that your word would stop us and that your spirit would guide us and that you would restore us. Father, I pray that you would um, make us as men, make us as your people, people of continual confession, always humbly pleading your mercy and rejoicing in receiving it through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.